Welcome to the We Whale Pod, the podcast diving into stories beneath our oceans. Each episode, we will present a guest connected to the world of whales, cetaceans, and the ocean. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the We Whale Pod. Hello and welcome to the We Whale Pod, the podcast diving into stories beneath our oceans. My name is Yannick and I'm the founder of We Whale. We are delighted to be joined today by Femke Den Haas, Indonesia Campaign Director for Wig O'Berry's Dolphin Project. You're very welcome to the We Whale Pod, Femke. Thank you, Yannick. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Femke. Could you tell us a little bit where you're coming from in the Netherlands and how you first developed your interest in cetaceans and the ocean? Yeah, I originally I was born in Africa, in Cameroon. I grew up in the Netherlands and I developed a passion for the ocean and marine life since a very young age. I, used, I lived close to the sea and I was fascinated by dolphins and by uh, any creature that lives in the ocean, basically. And I did a dive course as soon as I could. And I try to spend as much time in the ocean as possible, or near the ocean, at least. Oh, cool. And how, how does it come that you grew up or that you actually were born in Cameroon? That's something I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, my parents, they were working all over. They used to work for a development aid um, agency from the Netherlands. And so, yeah, I was born in Cameroon in Yaoundé and I spent the first few baby years there and when I was three we already returned to to Holland but um yeah I proudly can say I was born in Cameroon which is okay cool cool I, I know I know Douala by the way <laughs> I've been there oh, that's amazing <laughs> oh you've been there I so much want to yeah, go exactly. back yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool yeah um and before you moved to Indonesia in 2002, you volunteered at animal and wildlife rescues around the world. Uh, for example, in the Netherlands, Greece, Venezuela, and Guinea as well. Right. So what kind of, what kind of animals uh, were you working with and how did you enjoy actually that time? Yeah, I, I, every moment I had, I would volunteer. I would volunteer at the local wildlife centers. Um, in The Hague, where I grew up, there was a, a bird rescue facility. It was extremely basic in a container at the edge of the city. And I would bring my bicycle there and then spend the weekends there or when I have some hours after school because I always was fascinated by wildlife and animals in need of help. And I just really wanted to help them. Um, I also joined the local animal shelter for dogs and cats, and I ended up working at AAP, a rescue facility for primates in Holland, and also, um, yeah, at different facilities then later around the world. So I volunteered in Guinea, where I worked uh, with chimpanzees, which was just an amazing experience. And in Venezuela, there was a wildlife center with all kinds of different species from birds to mostly primates that were rescued from the illegal trade. And yeah, and then I did a course in wildlife uh, and marine mammal rescue to, to at least be able to help with strandings when dolphins strand and whales strand. And yeah, and so I just built up a lot of experience around the world working with different animal species. And then 
I also volunteered in Indonesia when I was just 16, actually, for six months. I stayed in the jungle. Uh, I, I just, I was very lucky to encounter the right person who was in charge of the center and he granted me um, admission to come and stay and volunteer for a few weeks, but they turned out into months and it was just an incredible experience. So I was really uh, happy to be able to be invited back to Indonesia in 2002. And this was by the Ministry of Forestry and Environment. And in that time, uh, it was called the Gibbon Foundation, a foundation set up to start the first wildlife center in Indonesia for confiscated wildlife. So we started um, with one center next to the airport and um, we created six wildlife centers around Indonesia. And two years ago, we opened the seventh one in Sumatra. And these are all centers focusing on yeah, the protection of wildlife and to be able to care for wildlife after they are confiscated. Okay, okay. And what, what kind of animals, for example, are you treating there? Oh, any animal that's confiscated. So, okay. Mm. yeah, not um, just aquatic. The aquatic uh, center is located in Bali and was really specifically made for dolphins. Uh, the other centers are there to take care of any animal that's confiscated because Indonesia deals with a lot of trade issues where people are still trading primates and reptiles and all kinds of different species. And mostly they end up in the illegal pet trade or they're transported to other countries illegally. And we, with our organization here, we aim to, yeah, to stop the wildlife crime issues and to assist the government with these issues and this is how we also encountered the problems with dolphins in indonesia okay okay and then the bali base is the one of the dolphin project of the rick O'Berry's dolphin project i guess yeah exactly because rick O'Berry's dolphin project has been assisting me with any issue with um, marine mammals since since 2010 and um, financially supporting and providing um, yeah, advice on different issues with marine mammals. And finally, we created the first rehabilitation facility for ex-performing dolphins. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, okay. So, uh, yeah, for, for our listeners, I think most, uh, most of them, they are aware of the documentary The Cove. That was also one one uh, action Rick O'Berry and the Dolphin Project um, yeah, initiated. and But for the ones maybe who, who are not so aware of, of the Dolphin Project, could you briefly explain what, what are you guys doing? Yeah, so Dolphin Project was um, initiated on Earth Day 1970 by Rick O'Berry, who's the former trainer of the well-known Flipper Dolphin, uh, the Flipper television series. Yeah. And Rico Berry um, went against what actually in the beginning he sort of created with this whole dolphin industry because Flipper became such a success, more places started to open up. And then immediately Rick O'Berry uh, went against this because he witnessed himself the suffering of the wild-caught dolphins that he was training. So he created Dolphin Project to be able to um, actively end or, or fight against this uh, horrific captive industry of dolphins. And yet it's spread around the world. Um, and Rick O'Berry is a pioneer in dolphin 
um, yeah, conservation and protection and anywhere around the world when there's an issue with a dolphin in captivity, people will call Rick O'Berry. And I'm one of those few people, uh, many people, I'm sorry, I'm one of the many people <laughs> who called Rick O'Berry when we uh, were facing a lot of issues here in Indonesia. So Dolphin Project um, works around the world. We work globally to fight the captive industry. And one of the main uh, programs that we run is um, exposing the hunting of dolphins in Japan at the Taiji mm -hmm. Cove. And this area is now very much known in this whole activity because of the award-winning documentary, The Cove, in which, of course, Rico Barrios featured. And sadly, this hunt is still happening. So every year, thousands of dolphins are killed and also the, the younger individuals or the individuals that the captive industry selects to use um, in performances, they, they will be selected and then kept alive and then sold around the world. So this horrific hunting is still happening and uh, Dolphin Project is uh, the only real organization that's been focusing on this issue for years and exposing this because it shows what's really happening behind the scenes of the captive industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, seeing a little bit what's happening in, in, in the Middle East where more and more dolphin shows are opened, I think this is also like an, still a big, a big danger for, for the animals um, and not stopping, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, just imagine that every performing dolphins, for every performing dolphin that you will see in captivity, Many have died in that cove and the cove has turned red just to see those few individuals um, held captive and having to entertain visitors. It's just, it's so cruel and, and it's so inhumane and it's so outdated. So yeah, it's indeed very sad to see so many facilities keep on being opened, you know, around the world in, yeah. in the Arab Arabic countries and also in China. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but then on the other hand, many countries are now forbidding it and ending it. So that's that's you know many countries are now setting the good example. Yeah, hopefully this is going to be continued uh, also yeah. by by other by other countries in the future. Yeah, let's yeah. let's see, let's see. Yeah. And talk, talking about Indonesia, um, yeah, I think it's it's kind of amazing in terms of marine biodiversity. But it also, like other regions around the world, which are quite connected to the sea, I think it has a challenging history of, of marine mammal exploitation. So as you work as the Indonesia campaign director for the Dolphin Project, um, could you tell us some insights? How do you see the country at the moment in terms of conservation, in terms of yeah, uh, improving um, uh, the situation with, with also dolphin hunts, shows or dolphin watching. Yeah. What's the situation there at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I've seen throughout the years things are changing for the better. Um, we ran a very long campaign against dolphin traveling shows. Actually, Indonesia is one of the last dolphin traveling shows of the world. And it's hard to imagine, but the cruelty that it was just beyond belief. Uh, dolphins were placed on trucks and they had to travel around the country and they were placed in plastic tarps and had to perform. And in, you know, in small villages, in big cities, at parking lots, behind malls, it was horrific. And um, finally, after 10 years of campaigning and really intense campaigning, um, a lot of protesting, a lot of lobbying the government, trying to stop it, 
in February 2020, the dolphin traveling shows were closed down. And a lot of facilities have been closed down. So in Bali, there used to be five facilities, and now there's only one left. Um, we see a lot of positive response from the government, and we're also really proud that now Indonesia has initiated the first permanent rehabilitation center for dolphins, um, for ex-performing dolphins specifically, which is quite an accomplishment for, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's that's good news on, on the one hand. Um, but on the other hand, I think still, uh, especially in terms of respectful dolphin watching, um, it's, there's still a lot of work to do also in Indonesia. I yeah, guess. we're still very far from respectful dolphin watching practices here. Um, there are a few areas where... Yeah, it's quite popular and people can easy spot marine mammals. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. in Bali, North Bali, in uh, the area of Lovina, to be precise. And here it's it's quite sad to see the amount of boats leaving every morning with tourists that are really pushing to see dolphins, come close to dolphins. And they are unaware of how harmful their behavior is. And when we did some research, so... When you listen to the sounds of, you know, the with the hydrophone in the in the times of COVID, for example, and there were hardly any boats at sea. It was it was beautiful. You could hear the dolphins. You could hear a lot of different sounds. But now all you hear is just are just engines of the boats. It's horrific, mm. and they're really chasing the dolphins and they're really harming them. So. Yeah, we just place billboards there and we're trying to socialize the regulations, to keep a distance, to be respectful. But yeah, it's it's difficult because it's mostly the visitors that are pushing the captains to go closer, to, to chase, to take a good photo. And the captains, yeah, they just want to make as much money as they can. So we're still in that situation. So yeah, mm. we're far from you know, having any good standards for dolphin watching here, which is sad because we're always trying to promote dolphin watching in the wild instead of visiting them in captivity. So, yeah, we're. I would love to see you come and visit Bali and, you know, maybe help us here to, to watch. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. It, it would be one of our, of our goals as well in the next years. Yeah, it Expanding would be the operation a little bit to, to Southeast Asia. So Bali is one of the most yeah, visited places, especially by by also Western foreigners. I think it would be a good a good point to go, definitely a good place to go. Yeah, yeah, great. And yeah, I think, but this is also kind of educational, um, so that people need to be aware of how how respectful dolphin watching has been done um so i think it's yeah it's great that you are there placing billboards uh, doing some educational work that people actually know what they are doing when they go on a boat yeah yeah exactly mm. yeah and yeah you're also doing uh, some inspiring work work in terms of rehabilitation and releasing dolphins uh can you tell us about the, the umalumba dolphin rehab center and the sanctuary you're you're doing yeah the umalumba rehab center really was a dream coming through um because for years we were pushing to end the dolphin traveling shows and for years we we're pushing to release dolphins that are illegally being kept. And we have done research in where do these dolphins originally come from? How do they end up there? You know, how were they 
taken from the ocean? Who's the trader? Um, and we had all that information and all we needed was a, a good place to release them. I mean, to at least get the permission to rehabilitate them and hopefully be able to release them in the future and the government's uh, permission to do so. And when that came finally and suddenly in 2019, I was overwhelmed with joy, but also with stress because suddenly we had to prepare, you know, everything, everything that was in our heads for years, like we're, one day we're going to be able to free these dolphins and we kept documenting the, the places where they were kept and the horror that was going on behind the scenes and dolphins were dying inside the swimming pools and we kept reporting this to the government. And then finally, when the government came back to us and said, look, okay, you know, uh, we, we're ready to close down this facility. There has been a lot of issues. Two dolphins had died in the last year. Um, What's the solution? So we had to quickly set up this, which be, turned out to become an amazing center um, for these dolphins that were still inside those swimming pools. So we created the Umalumba Rehabilitation Facility, uh, which could also serve as a sanctuary for those dolphins that are unreleasable. And we uh, chose a beautiful bay at the edge of the national park and we were granted the permission from the government to use that area. Uh, and then together with the Ministry of Environment and Forestry and, um, yeah, and different parties, we, we created uh, this center and we relocated the dolphins in August. Well, in August, actually, they were confiscated. So they were in our hands, let's say, under our management. But they were in such a poor condition. They were so extremely skinny and weak and one dolphin uh he i mean i'm still shocked and i'm still really emotional when i talk about it he was he was doing self-harm so we found him jumping at the side of the pool and he was bleeding all over and he kept doing it and it was just so hard to watch him and he, he had been in that pool for years and it was just so incredible how he had survived all those years and doing so much self-harm to himself, like he was really mentally and physically disturbed mm -hmm. and in a really poor condition. So finally, we we had to treat them in that swimming pool and we had to stay there for the first two months, which was really challenging because you're dealing with people who were not happy. You know, the owner of that facility, of course, was, was really upset with the dolphins being confiscated and then we had to stay there. So it was not an easy... Uh, you know, easy position that we were in, but we treated the dolphins. We stayed there. We had protection of the uh, authorities. And then finally, when the center was created, we, we relocated them to this sea pen facility, which was, um, we first built two sea pens, 15 meters deep, 30 by 30 meters wide, and that twice. So we had two different sea pens connected. Uh, yeah, connected. So they could okay. swim in between. And then we relocated them there. And that moment was just incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Nice, nice. So how, how many dolphins are still in captivity in, in, in Bali, for example? In Bali, there is one facility in the southern part of Bali, uh, which okay. actually sadly opened up when we had closed all the other facilities. So actually all the facilities in Bali were closed. But then this facility opened um, with a whole new scheme of marketing you know, stating that they are caring for rescued dolphins. Well, 
the dolphins were, they say, they were rescued from uh, fishermen nettings, you know. And uh, it's just a very <laughs> clever way of marketing themselves. And sadly, people believe it or people want to believe it. And they pay a lot of money to go there and swim with the dolphins. But all these dolphins were taken from the wild and all these dolphins are suffering in captivity. They have um, 12 12 dolphins inside the swimming pool, but I learned that two died last uh, July. So, um, yeah, but they never sent the full documentation. But so now they, are, okay. they have 10 only. Yeah, but I mean okay. 10 only. They still have 10 individuals inside the swimming pool. Okay, and that's only Bali, Bali but in whole Indonesia, do we have numbers for this as well? Yeah, in the whole of Indonesia, there must be another 30 dolphins. There's like about 20 in uh, Jakarta in this uh, really horrific mm -hmm. facility. And then there's two other places that still keep captive dolphins um, in Java also. So people pay and swim with them and, you know, watch the shows. Okay. And sadly, okay. that's still okay. happening. Okay. And I think one of the objectives uh, of you guys would be yeah, to to get these dolphins into the sanctuary step by step and try to see if they can be released or not. Yeah, exactly. When the government grants us permission mm. to receive more dolphins, um, we are we are able to to care for them and then we you know they have to undergo several stages within the rehabilitation project um, to enable us to learn if they are release candidates or not and okay. yeah and our main aim is of course to release them back to open sea mm -hmm. can you can you describe such a process how, how is this working Yeah, so you, you can imagine that when the dolphins are kept inside a, a chlorinated swimming pool, their skin is hurting, their eyes are hurting, they have internal problems, they are really sick. You don't see it, but they suffer from many different issues. So the first uh, thing we have to focus on is providing them medical aid and you know checking their condition, so taking blood work, um, Uh, providing them vitamins, and then we start with the next phrase, which is getting them back to a normal weight. Because dolphins in captivity are always kept underweight. They're always kept hungry. Because if dolphins mm. are not hungry in captivity, they will not perform. They will not listen. They won't be interested in all those stupid, idiotic tricks that people make them do. So the only way to make them do what the trainers want them to do is by keeping them hungry. So our aim is, uh, I mean, our main focus in the beginning period, and I would cover like a few months, two, three months with the dolphins that we uh, rescued. Actually, for two of them, it took five months before they got in a better weight because we had to do it very slowly um, because they were so weak. And, uh, and then we introduced them whole life, a whole fish, a whole fresh fish, because in captivity, they're being given only pieces of frozen fish, which is extremely bad for their stomach. They develop all these ulcers and, and stomach issues. So we introduce uh, fresh fish to them, and then we introduce live fish to them. And, and mm -hmm. this takes some time. And of course, the dolphins are so happy when they can get live fish again. And then it's really important to understand if they are using their sonar, Because when they're living in a swimming pool, they will switch off the sonar most of the times because the walls in the concrete walls in those tanks make them go crazy. Every time they would try to use the sonar, it just bounces back at them. So often they, they no longer, they cannot use the sonar anymore. So 
when they are in the ocean, we need to listen and we need to listen and understand if they're, they're using their sonar so they can navigate, so they can catch the fish. And so what we do actually is listening to them and absorbing them from a distance um, and providing them live fish and with underwater cameras, seeing if they are able to uh, catch the fish and to really hunt. And of course, we also need to observe their behavior. So their social behavior, the social structures between them, uh, that's really important. Okay, yeah. okay, very interesting. Thank you, Femke. Cool, yeah. And um, so so why do you think, well, first, first question would be, why do you think dolphins are so important to the planet? And secondly, why we people uh, do connect with them so much? Um, I think... Dolphins are extremely, extremely uh, compassionate and clever and, you know, they help others and they're very unique in that way where they see also when there's a, a problem, they'll react, you know, it's incredible. And they're just so important for the oceans, for ocean life in general. Um, and then I, I always see them as the humans of the ocean, but then they are the good ones and we are the bad ones, you know, in a way, because... They understand everything. And I felt like I was learning more from them, you know, just being around them because they're so developed and so smart. It's just incredible. Um, so, yeah, I think we connect so much to them because they are like us. They're self-aware. They look you in the eye. You know, they you really have a connection with them. And they're very curious. So when they see people or boats or, or they come up and they, they'll check you out. So, yeah, I think <laughs> that's why we really connect to them. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And maybe to, to finish our conversation, um, what is, what is, what do you love most about the work? What do you do? What I love is giving them back their freedom or at least be able to release the pain that others inflicted on them. So, you know, try to make right for some people who made wrong in that way and just, when we can free them and actually really totally free them and seeing them living their lives as they should. Yeah. That makes me really happy. Nice. Nice. Beautiful. Femke, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure that you gave us uh, these insights about your work of what you're doing in, in Indonesia. Um, my, thank my you. Uh, greatest respect for this. And I hope really that, that we see each other soon then in Indonesia and to see what we can do together there. Yeah, that will be amazing. We'll be waiting for you here in Bali. And yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Femke. Have a good day. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the We Whale Pod. You can find out more about the world of whales and the work of We Whale on our website, wewhale.com. Co. And also make sure to check us out on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. See you again next time.